Good evening, church. Today's scripture reading is taken from Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 14. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 14. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should we, why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. It is reported among the nations, and Gashem says it is true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore, you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your mind. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehitabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away, or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Before we start, Fanny, can you help me press play on the thing? Uh, I'll control from the clicker because the connection is not connecting. Just help me press play on the slide. Now I can take it from there. My remote control refuses to connect.
keynote, then press play. Very good, thank you. Come, let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we have together. We thank you that indeed we are able to gather together to hear your word. We pray that, Lord, you just open our eyes to your word. We pray as we continue learning what it means to become a leader for your kingdom, what it means to equip ourselves in this year of equipping, that, Lord, that you strengthen us and keep us in your grace and just keep allowing us to draw close to you, to draw your strength, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we hear of this word conspiracy, right? Whether, if you're a little bit like me, you may find conspiracies rather intriguing. Most of the television shows that I like watching have something to do with a conspiracy, right? The drama and the tension that it brings with them. And whether that's historical conspiracies like the plot to kill Julius Caesar or like elaborate pyramid schemes or those pesky online scams that we encounter, we have all heard of this word conspiracy. Right? And to bring it a little closer to home, perhaps we've seen how someone has schemed or has plotted their rise up the corporate ladder or up social circles because they were able to conspire to do so. But if we thought a little bit deeper about the nature of conspiracy, right, they are inherently dark. They reveal the root of selfishness in human nature that seeks either personal gain or someone's destruction. That is the nature of any conspiracy that we face. And thus that brings us, so that's a lesson for us to learn that as Christians, we need to learn to stand up against conspiracies, to stand up to the dark plans of this world. And this is where we are going to situate ourselves to find out what it means, to learn from Nehemiah what it means to stand up against conspiracy. And what we'll find in Nehemiah chapter 6 is a conspiracy courtesy of his enemies, Sanballat and Tobiah, to do one of two things. A, harm Nehemiah, or B, meddle or get in the way of the Lord's work. To harm Nehemiah or to hinder the Lord's work. But Nehemiah stands strong in the face of it all, and it is precisely from how he dealt with this conspiracy that we will draw lessons today. And for us, you know, we may not face a direct conspiracy in our life, but we definitely struggle against the conspiracy of the evil one. That as Christians in Ephesians, it reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Or like Reverend Darren spoke a few weeks ago, as we do the Lord's work, opposition will arise. As we serve the Lord, we will face the conspiracies of the devil. And we need to learn how to respond to that. And so with that, we dive in. We dive into Nehemiah chapter 6. And what happens as we arrive in Nehemiah chapter 6 is that the wall is almost completed. The chapter opens noting with Nehemiah noting that this opposition that he's going to describe arose when the wall had not a gap left in it. In fact, it was so close to being done that all he had to do, that all he had to do was to set the doors in their place, as verse 3 tells us. But it's precisely at this point that the enemies attack. And that teaches us in itself something, right? That when the work is almost done, we still need to be aware 
of the enemy's relentless attack. You know, if you watch football, right, there's, there's this old adage that goes, you're most vulnerable after you score a goal, right? That just as the job looks like it's right on track, perhaps that's where we take our eyes off the ball, we slacken just that little bit, and the enemies make that attempt to strike there and then. So if we, if we relate that to the church context, for example, perhaps we celebrate when a newcomer comes. We are happy when we welcome someone new into the family. But yet, if we just celebrate that alone and we don't take that opportunity to help them grow in the Lord, to help them find a place in this community, in the end, they fall away. And it's in that same way as we serve the Lord, as we look to the victories that God is giving, we need to continue to be aware. And so in this scenario, what we're going to do and how we're going to analyze it is we're going to look at it as a five-prong plot against Nehemiah. And to each prong, Nehemiah offers a response. So to help us to remember this, we're going to look at the five plots of the enemy with something that starts with the letter D, so five Ds, and then Nehemiah's response with the five Ps. So the first prong we're going to look at is how the enemies disturbed Nehemiah, right? They came and they invited him to meet them while the work was still going on. Verse 2 tells us, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. And you know, given the tension, right, between Sanballat, Geshem, Nehemiah, this could have been interpreted as a chance for peace. It can look so much like they are trying to say, hey, Nehemiah, we have this tension, let's meet, let's make peace. It seems good on paper, but yet Nehemiah's response was a firm no. Verse 3 says, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. However, this is not Nehemiah rejecting a chance for peace. This is not Nehemiah saying that he doesn't want to make peace with them. Instead, he sees through their plot that they were scheming to harm him. That in the midst of the disturbance, Nehemiah perceived their true intent. Think about these questions. If they wanted to make peace, why not meet Nehemiah where the work was going on? Why meet at a location set by Sanballat and Gershom. And then when we take into account where this village of Ono is, it presents with us two problems. The first is that the village on the plain of Ono is roughly 20 miles away. And so if we consider that's about a day's journey, if Nehemiah were to leave and take a day's journey to meet them, then let's say hypothetically spend a day discussing with them, take a rest and then make his way back to the work site, that means that he is away, the work stops for half a week. And the second, Raymond Brown, the author of the Bible Speaks Today, the commentary notes that the village is on the borders of hostile territory. That this location that Sanballat and Gershom were trying to lure Nehemiah to were on the borders of Ashdod and Samaria, and that in all likelihood, because they knew that they couldn't harm Nehemiah in Jerusalem because he was the governor, they were trying to lure him out from his place of work and then kidnap him 
and then equate that to some sort of random accident that happened along the way because we met on the plains of Ono. And as such, Nehemiah saw the evidence. He saw that what may seem like an offer for peace was in fact just a thinly veiled kidnapping attempt. And as such, Nehemiah took in the evidence and he perceived the situation. He recognized that it was not right for him to be away from the work. He saw through their kidnapping plot. And this is an instructive lesson for us. That when we are doing the work of the Lord, are we aware of what disturbs our call at that point in time? Are we grounded in the Lord such that we are able to perceive these disturbances correctly? It could happen in a very, very direct way, right? Suppose we were praying about something, we were praying about serving on a church committee, right? And then a job opportunity comes along and it would mean having us to give it up, right? Do we take the chance to truly ask and perceive from Christ where He intends us to be? Do we remember that we have indeed been called there? Now, that's not to say, right, that church work always comes first, that the key to that scenario is not simply the divide between church work and secular work. The key to that scenario is remembering that in that hypothetical scenario I just shared, the starting point is that we were convinced that God had called us to serve in that role. Because it could well be the other way around, right? That God has led us to a certain opportunity in the workplace and He has a purpose for us there. And in that sense, the opportunity to serve in church then becomes a ipso facto distraction. So the key is not simply to simp oversimplify and say church and work and say that they are both not and say that church must be from God and the other is not. The key to understanding what God has called us to is to say, God, where is your leading? And to perceive the disturbances correctly. So let us learn to subject every opportunity that we have before the Lord. Let us learn to take the opportunities that are presented before us, even though they may be a, a good idea on paper, but to perceive them rightly with where God has called us at this point in time. So we go to the second one. They tried to distract Nehemiah, but Nehemiah remained purposeful. They tried to distract Nehemiah, but Nehemiah remained purposeful. Verse 4. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Right? The first prong, the first prong to try and bring Nehemiah out from the camp failed. They tried to become a distraction by sending the same message over and over and over again. They tried to distract him, right? It's like someone trying to spam call you. It's like last time, you know, when Caleb doesn't reply my messages, right? Do you know what I used to do to him? I would send him H-E-L-L-O as individual messages and then spell the whole name C-A-L-E-B and then spell Bonaya all the way down just so that he has no choice but to respond to me or else I won't stop texting him. That's literally what they were trying to do here. Spam, 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 send it four times to Nehemiah to try and get his response. And naturally, there is an automatic temptation to respond. But in the midst of this, Nehemiah remained purposeful. That four times they sent him the same message, but each time he gave them the same answer. 
that regardless of how they tried to distract him, he stayed true to his purpose and did not turn away from what God had called him to. That turn of phrase in that verse is almost the writer calling out a one-for-one one that for every time they tried it, Nehemiah was equally firm in his response. Four times they tried to send the same message, but each time Nehemiah stood firm and remained purposeful. It sounds like a very, it sounds like a straightforward lesson to learn, but for us to apply it, let us remember that in order to remain purposeful, we actually need to know our purpose. In order to remain purposeful, we need to know our purpose. And that only happens when we are building our relationship with God. This reminds us of the need to be disciplined in spending time with God, to be seeking His will, seeking His face, to be spending time to build a relationship, just like any relationship that we may have in life. It's not built unless we spend time at it. But when we do, we will be clear on what our purpose is. You know, a personal story, when I knew that God had called me to, to full-time ministry and after I had sort of prayed and, and understood that, and the confirmation was indeed that God was saying, come straight in here. There were at least two opportunities to go in another direction. Right? If you're rather new and you don't know me, I, I used to really want to do radio. I hosted a radio show for almost a year. And when I said yes to God to come into church, and when I had already started interning in church before my, my NS days, there were at least two, if not three, opportunities to go back to the media industry. And this was in the midst of me trying to ascertain God is church where you're calling me to. But once I knew that, I turned those opportunities away. But they were tempting. But, the only, but that's not to say that, that I have some perfect relationship with God or that's not to say that that's what it means to be purposeful in, in all of it. But it is to say that out of that my relationship with God, when I was clear where He had called me to, that gave me that courage. That gave me that courage to turn those opportunities away. And so it reminds us of that need to spend time with God and to know our purpose. And as we think about that, you know, as we search for our specific purposes in God, all of us have different opportunities and we are called to different things. Some of us are called to be parents, called to serve in the marketplace, so on and so forth. They are all there. They are all individual specific purposes. And while it is important for us to search out those things, we should also remember that we, there are clear purposes that we are being called to in the Bible that there are clear purposes and clear directions that God has set out for us to live out in our lives. Of course, the most obvious one is the Great Commission, right? To make disciples of all nations. To make disciples of all nations and to teach them to obey that God, all that God has commanded. That is a call for us to be disciple-makers. And while our expressions may differ in that we are called to different jobs and different places, that call to make disciples is collective. 
that call to make disciples is applicable to each and every single one of us. That our church vision of a lifestyle of evangelism and a culture of discipleship is not just some fancy vision mission statement by an organization. It is simply the Great Commission being rephrased. And so in that respect, us being called to the Great Commission, the question is not whether we are called to the Great Commission. The question is if each of us in this room are convinced of this call. That if we say that the Bible, what the Bible says is true and we want to be founded on the Word of God, is this a truth that we have internalized? And this is something that we're going to ponder in our cell groups this week. Do we, have we reached that stage of being convinced ourselves that we are being called to the Great Commission? Because if we have not, we'll forever be distracted because we're not clear of purpose. But the Bible is clear. The question is, what sort of soil are we? Have we internalized that to accept that God has indeed called us to make disciples? And if we're not, then it's time to ask ourselves why. What is the barrier? What is causing that spiritual apathy that we cannot accept or we have not understood within us that this is something that God has called us to. When Nehemiah faced distractions, he remained purposeful. The third prong. They tried to discredit Nehemiah, but Nehemiah remained planted on truth. Verse 5, Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter. This time, not only did Nehemiah send the same message, he sent with him an unsealed letter. That is a rather blatant thing to do because the heart of an unsealed letter, if we think about it, when we send letters out, they're all sealed. An unsealed letter implies that he wanted other people to read it, right? For exaggeration's sake, okay? It would be like, I'm not happy with Ken. And because I'm not happy with Ken, I go and print a letter that says I'm unhappy with Ken and I print it in font size 256 and I carry it in front of me like a signboard and then I tell everybody, this is for Ken only, ah. don't need to read. That is what they were trying to do when they sent this unsealed letter. And we look at what the content of the letter was. This is a bit long, but it is reported among the nations, and Gershom says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. This is no ordinary letter. He is trying to outrightly discredit Nehemiah by saying he is accusing Nehemiah of starting a revolt against a king. He even tries to, to add credibility to it by saying that Gershom, who is probably the chief of the Arabs, that Gershom says it is true. 
And he tries to paint him as someone who is instigating a revolt by appointing prophets to anoint him as king, by saying that Nehemiah is declaring that he is now king of Jerusalem. And to top it all off, he says, so come, let us meet together as if they wanted to help him. And let's face it that if we were Nehemiah, in all human wisdom and likeliness of reaction, right? If, for example, someone put up a Facebook post, okay, and said that I am trying to start my own breakaway church and upset the authority of Pastor Darren, my natural reaction could very well be to confront that person, right? And because I know that that's not true, and very likely that would cause an even bigger bout of drama. But Nehemiah avoids the temptation here that temptation rather, and he deals with it in a very specific way. He simply stands on truth. In the face of being discredited, there was no overreaction. Nehemiah simply stood on truth. And he just replies, nothing like what you say, you are saying here is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. Nehemiah knows precisely what is going on. But instead of jumping at that chance to defend himself, instead of jumping at the opportunity to go and confront his enemies, he simply decides to respond to them in truth and trust that the Lord will judge his enemies in time. It's like what St. Augustine said. Truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let it loose and it will defend itself. And for us, as we think about our lives as Christians, especially in the climate of today that seems to want to paint that Christians are bigoted, we are inflexible, we are unloving, we are unaccepting. This calls us to two responses. It challenges us, do we stand firm on the truth of God and what the Bible teaches? Do we know and study the Word for ourselves to be sure that we are standing on biblical ground? so that we will not waver? And second, do we live this truth in such a way that it defends itself? Do we live this truth in such a way that it defends itself? Meaning to say, God is loving, God is kind. Do we live like we have that kind of God? God corrects, God disciples, God disciplines. Do we live as if we believe in those things? It's all good to say love the sinner and hate the sin, but do we actually live that way? Or do we ostracize some sinners because of the sin? In the midst of being discredited, Nehemiah stood for truth. As the world tries to discredit us and what we believe, do we stand on truth? The fourth prong is this discouragement, which was met with prayer. We won't spend too long on this. It's simply this. The, the enemies are almost getting desperate, right? They're trying to frighten them. They're trying to break their morale, right? In the text in verse 9, it says, their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. To which Nehemiah simply replies, but I prayed, now strengthen my hands. This doesn't need much explanation except to say that when we face discouragement in the calls that God has over our lives, whether it's as a parent in the workplace or even in our roles in church, 
do we respond to the discouragement by taking it into our own hands? Or do we pray and rely on God for strength? Just as that old hymn says, right? Are we weak and heavy laden? Is there trouble anywhere? We shall never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Final prong. They tried to deceive Nehemiah, and in the midst of this, Nehemiah pushed back. Nehemiah turned suddenly, right, to this recount of this episode when he went to the house of Shemaiah, who for some unspecified reason was stuck in his home. And at his house, Shemaiah told him, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you by night. They are coming to kill you. Again, this sounds like a really enticing proposal, right? Go and hide inside the Lord's house. God's house is safe. And it sounds even more credible, as scholars Gary Smith and John Goldingay note, because the way the message is phrased sounds like it's an oracle from a prophet. It's very, very subtle, but it's there. It has all the verbal markers of something that was prophesied, right? There's a triplet at the beginning of the verse, that triple repetition of the idea, house of God, temple, close the temple doors. And then he tries to seal it with the double repetition of kill you, kill you. If we have read any of the prophecies, we will hear that verbally there are parallels. They are not just trying to deceive Nehemiah, they are trying to deceive him by disguising it as some word from the Lord. But again, Nehemiah sees right through it. Right? The text would even imply that Nehemiah knew that they were trying to sound like a prophecy because verse 12 tells us, but he had prophesied against me. And if we look at those words carefully, to meet in the house of God, there's actually a danger in that. But to recognize that danger, we remember that Nehemiah, he grew up as a cupbearer, and now he was governor of Judah. And that means that he was not a priest. He was not the one God had called to bring sacrifices into the temple. And what they were trying to do was to deceive Nehemiah to take on that role of priest and enter the sanctuary when he was not allowed to. Because to enter the sanctuary was a role left solely for the priests. Lay people could go to the temple courts and offer sacrifices and worship, but to enter the sanctuary was reserved for the priests. And that was exactly what the prophet was trying to do. To deceive Nehemiah and to acting in that role as priest, maybe even in the hope that if he does it, God will strike him down. And so in response to this, Nehemiah pushed back. He saw through it all. He was cognizant of the truth, but he didn't push back in a way that was like he went to fight them. Nehemiah pushed back by committing these enemies to God. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. To push back against enemies doesn't require us to take matters into our own hands. We need only pray and commit them to the Lord to let the Lord deal with them in His time. When they tried to deceive Nehemiah, Nehemiah pushed back by committing these enemies to God. And this passage, again, 
becomes especially instructive for us. And we remember right at the start that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of evil and of this world. And when we recognize that we are in a spiritual battle and the enemy is indeed conspiring in every way to disturb us, to distract us, to discourage us, to discredit us, and to deceive us so that the word of the Lord will not be accomplished, it is then on us to stand firm on the Lord's word, to perceive the attack of the enemy correctly, to remain purposeful to what God has called us to, to remain planted on His Word, to turn to Him in prayer, and to push back by committing our enemies to Him. That in the face of this, that must be our cry and our desire. Notice how this chapter ends. It's almost, under this section rather, it's almost a very random verse, but it offers so much hope that in the midst of dealing with this whole slew of conspiracies as Nehemiah stood firm, the section ends on a note of victory. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elal in 52 days. Nehemiah stood firm in the law and faced up to his opposition. And at the end of it, it ends in sweet victory in the sweet completion of the task that God had placed in His hands. In the same way, as we face opposition in the work that the Lord has called us to, we are called to stand firm and faithfully complete the work at hand. That on that day when our strength is failing and our time has come, we too can hear the words, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. That is the importance of us standing up to what the enemy conspires as we serve the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truths that are laid out by Nehemiah and by his example. We pray, Lord, for each of us that as we continue to serve, as we continue in this call that you have called us to, as we spend the time to be convicted that you have indeed called us to the Great Commission, to be convicted, to reflect on what it means that you have called us to make disciples of all nations. Let us always know that our hope is built on nothing less. That you, Lord, are our cornerstone. In you alone, Lord, we put our trust. Yes, Lord. We thank you that you are our cornerstone. As we close the service, we pray this. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. Amen.